You're listening to Instructive's Insane Instruction Show. I am Ferry V. I create happy and safe users for over two decades. This is a listen and learn podcast to help your firm keep on the right side of the law by creating better information for use. How do you know you can trust what I say? I've worked in product development and compliance for a few decades and I've built up three companies and my blog attracts over 10,000 visitors a month. None of this is as important as keeping your company and your users safe. They're happy, their partners are happy and of course I am happy for them. Hi there and welcome to the show. In this podcast, we're going to talk about using style guides in technical communication. So what is a style guide? A style guide is a set of standards for writing and designing content. A style guide for technical writing defines the style that should be used in technical communication, such as in user manuals, online help and procedural writing. A style guide helps you to write documentation in a clearer way and to keep a consistent tone of voice and style. To improve the quality of the content that we create for our clients, we recently created our own style guide. This guide is inspired by some existing style guides. During my research, I came across many different style guides that I will list here. So they show up in the transcriptions of this episode, including links to where to find them. Many of them are freely available. These style guides include the ASD STE 100 standard or the Simplified Technical English Style Guide, the Microsoft Manual of Style, the Chicago Manual of Style, the Oxford Manual of Style, the Handbook of Technical Writing, the Apple Style Guide, the IBM Style Guide, the SAP Style Guide, the Google Style Guide, Cole's Global English Style Guide 2008, Shipley Associate Style Guide for Oil and Gas Professionals, the Department of Defense Writing Style Guide and Preferred Usage, the Style Guide for the Atlassian Developer Documentation, TechPros, SAE International Technical Paper Style Guide, a List Apart Style Guide, the Red Hat Style Guide, and the following open source style guides, the 18F Content Guide, the Open SUSE Style Guide, and the GNOME Style Guide. With this episode, I hope to provide more insight on how to apply existing style guides or create your own to improve the quality of your information for use. In this podcast, we will discuss the difference between a brand style guide and a technical writing style guide, some of the style guides that are available and when to use them, how can a style guide help you to write better documentation, and how to create your own style guides. Let me introduce today's guests. Our first guest of today is Mike Onwala. He's from Sheffield, South Yorkshire in the United Kingdom. Mike is a freelance technical writer and helps organizations to make their technical documents as clear as possible. Through his website, techscribe.co.uk, he discusses all kinds of topics related to technical writing, such as language, design, standards, and document production. Mike specializes in simplified technical English, language quality assurance, technical editing, and text simplification. He has built a term checker for ASD Simplified Technical English. Our second guest is Scott Deloach. He's from Miami Beach, Florida. Scott is founder at ClickStart. 
Scott specializes in UX, UA, so user experience and user assistance, policy and procedure consulting, and HTML5, CSS training and consulting. He has 25 years of experience designing and developing user interfaces and user assistance. He's the author of the Metcap Flare Training Guides and Metcap Flare 2020, The Definitive Guide. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Hi, Ferry. Two questions to kick off. Mike, um, UK English or US English? Whatever the customer wants. Scott, hardware documentation or software documentation? <laughs> uh, most of my work is with software documentation, but I enjoy both of them. All right, thanks. So we're going to talk about style guides and um, specifically style guides that you can use in technical documentation, technical communication. Why is a brand style guide or a style guide such as the Chicago Manual of Style not sufficient for technical writers? I can think of a couple of reasons for that. Um, if we think about, say, a brand I would call it more of a brand guidelines uh, document. Usually comes from the marketing department and it's primarily focused on colors, uh, fonts, uh, logos that you're supposed to use and when you're supposed to use them. So all the branding elements, but they rarely talk much about um, word usage as much or um, things that come up in our technical documents. Uh, as for Chicago manual style, it's almost the opposite, but it's a little generic. Uh, so it's more how to use contractions or <laughs> when to use an acronym, but it's not necessarily focused on exactly what we're doing. So I, I think they both support what we want to do. There's components of it, but if you only have a brand guidelines document or you only have the Chicago manual style, you're missing a lot of <laughs> useful information uh, that you're going to need to document. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Scott. So, um, why do you think uh, you need a style guide in technical communication? What are the advantages of using a style guide? I think all three of us can come up with numerous advantages. I'll just pick one. I don't want to monopolize it. Uh, to me, the, the biggest advantage of a style guide uh, and the way that I use it the most often is I really like to have examples. Um, because I might forget a detail, uh, even something that people argue about all the time. Are we going to have a period at the end of a, you know, items in a bulleted list? Even something like that, I can see a quick example and realize, all right, we do use periods or we don't use periods. Um, or how to format a table, same thing, an example. If there's something I can quickly refer to and see how I'm supposed to do it, or if it's formatting, quickly copy and then use it uh, for what I'm writing. That's an incredible time saver, and it makes sure that everybody's consistent. Yeah, I agree strongly with, uh, with Scott. Um, if we have some kind of reference to go to, there is no argument. Um, Scott was talking earlier on about, um, about terminology, and I've worked with well, one company that I'm thinking of. They had 13 different terms for the same, for the same um, item. And I have heard of organizations that have had up to 40 terms for the same thing. And with a style guide, well, you have one preferred term and you know where you stand. Um, certainly it's, it's asking a lot of customers to, to understand 40 different terms for the same thing. You know, and it's, it's just, um, it just causes so much confusion. So it, it, it improves communication by ensuring consistency. Yes. For sure. Yeah, it gives you, a lot of people would call it, a, you know, the single source of truth. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it's like Mike saying, there's no argument. It's, hey, this is what the style guide says. <laughs> so that's what we do. We don't need to argue it out. We already argued it out. And now we agreed it's in the style guide. So no reason to argue anymore. Yeah, and I, I can imagine that, for example, in, um, in a brand style guide, consistency is less important than it is in a technical communication style guide. I'm not convinced about that. I mean, I, I don't do any kind of um, copywriting, so I don't pay much attention to brand guidelines. But from what I know, um, are we permitted in this uh, discussion also to mention uh, um, uh, commercial products? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you look at things like Acrolinks, and uh, they, they make um, a, a strong case for, for why brand consistency is, 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 is important. And... Um, my understanding of, of brand guidelines is that in, indeed they do um, they do stress consistency in the certainly in the in the in the, in the branding terminology that, that you use. I can see what you're getting at, uh, Ferry. Um, an interesting thing about a brand guide, I have to deal with them very often because they're uh, very very common in software documentation. Uh, an interesting thing about a brand guideline that's a little bit different than, say, a style guide just picking the simple example again if there's going to be periods at the end of a bulleted list or something we typically have one rule it's like this is the rule this is how we do it there's no gray area like sometimes we do it this way sometimes this is how we do it but a brand guideline if you think of like a logo there's going to be multiple sizes there's going to be here's how you use the logo on a dark background here's how you use it on a light background here's how you use it in grayscale so it does have those variations because the things that it's talking about are used in very different situations and are trying to cover it whereas ours is this is how we do it because we only really have one situation <laughs> that we're having to deal with so there is that kind of interesting difference between them yeah maybe the only difference uh maybe publishing something online or in print I used to see that a lot in style guys. That's an interesting thing to bring up. Um, and we would even have different writing guidelines for print and online. I think a lot of that has gone away, but you do see that now. And even some of the examples that you mentioned, um, now I think what's happened is it's become, Hey, here's how we do it for mobile or mobile. And here's how we do it for desktop. And I have seen even writing differences, certainly, between those two situations. But I don't see the, the print and online as much anymore, but I still think it's valid. Yeah, exactly. But, but for example, uh, when you refer to a certain section in the online documentation, online help, you can, you can place a hyperlink to that section. And you can say, okay, um, when you place a hyperlink, it should all be... Mm, uh, capitalized and not not italic for example and you should place a hyperlink but when you print your documentation it should be uh, italic and uh, well of course you, you can't place a link to that part and that is something that can be part of uh, of a style guide right yeah absolutely I, I for me a lot of that has been handled with css so it's sort of automated so the style guide might more say, hey, you need to use a cross-reference because, you know, we've set up the cross-reference to handle these differences. So it just the, the writer doesn't have to deal with it as much. But there is something in the style guide that says, hey, you have to use, in that case, a cross-reference because <laughs> it's going to adapt itself for online and print. So I, I do think it's still there. That's a, it's a really interesting uh, example, actually. Hey, and Mike, what, uh, what, what style guides do you have experience with? 
the two that I know very well are the, um, the Global English Style Guide by John Cole and the ASDSTE 100 specification, which I mean, I have to stress it's not it's not a style guide and it doesn't it doesn't position itself in the market as a style guide, but it has many um, it has many similarities to a style guide, especially in terms of the of the terminology um, recommendations. Yeah, because the ASD STE, so the Simplified Technical English specification, is quite clear in has like really clear rules, and and I think they're one of the few style guides, if we call it a style guide, that uh, that also calls it a rule. Where other style guides are a bit more, um, they describe the rules in in. In a certain way, do you know what I mean? But I mean that's why I like the cold style guide because it is a set of rules, and um, oh, oh, all right, perhaps best practice guidelines. But the they are all developed from um, from data. They're not uh, they're not opinion. You know, they they have a solid foundation in in in, in um, you know validated uh, validated data. Well, we've done these tests and we've done those tests, and thus we suggest you use this guideline. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Uh, well, let's start with the simplified technical English uh, specification. W- what is simplified te- technical English? Simplified technical English is a specification for a controlled language. So what's a controlled language? A controlled language is a natural language, such as English or French or Chinese, that has um, restrictions on the vocabulary and on the grammatical structures that you can use. Typically, that's done to make the text um, as easy as possible to read. Sometimes it can be done uh, so that you can make text that is is computationally uh, analysable. the SE specification is, is 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 designed to to make text easy to read, and it was. I mean, it started off 40, 50 years ago in the aerospace industry, where a lot of the a lot of the technicians did not use English as a first language, and so the the uh, the, the players in the industry got together and developed uh, developed some guidelines, and which turned into the ASDST one hundred specification. Now the specification, very small part, I think 3% of the terminology is, is specific to, to, to the aircraft industry. Uh, the, the, the specification now is applicable to all types of, all types of, of, of especially safety critical domains where you need to make sure that your text and, and particularly your instructional text is unambiguous and as simple to read as possible. So it's more hardware oriented than it's software. It can be used for both. Um, it started off as you know more hardware oriented, but it's certainly got sections now for IT and computing terminology. So it's not you know it doesn't exclude that. And I've used it in my um, software documentation projects. Um, I, I, I think it's applicable really to all types of instructional. Um, instructional material where you want to be as clear as possible. It's not useful for marketing documentation. It's not useful if you want to have 
well, to say... How can you achieve being as clear as possible or how can you achieve that according to the SDE specification? I'll start with the easy parts. So the, the terminology management and terminology. So in English, we have many synonyms uh, for the word large. Big is a typical synonym, but, but there, are, there are many others, perhaps more informal, and you probably wouldn't find them in, in, in so much in technical documentation, such as huge or enormous, but you can. The, the SDE specification says, well, we, we're going to use, we're going to define the word large as the approved term where you're making some kind of comparison. And that's the adjective we're going to use. Don't use big. Don't use huge. So that kind of relates to, I, I think most technical writers will agree that we have one term, one meaning. One technical term has one meaning. So you don't call it a gizmo and a widget and a doofer when they all refer to the same thing. Now, if you accept that principle for technical terms, there's no reason not to accept that principle for non-technical terms that you can find in a standard dictionary. So that's one part of the, of the terminology. The other part is the, is the, is the technical terms, and that there are rules in STE that say choose a term and use it consistently. On the, on the grammar side of things, the specification restricts the tenses that you can use. So it doesn't permit um, me to write um, something like the past, uh, the past perfect tense after something has, past perfect passive after something has been done. Um, I have to say after it was done, just a simple past in the passive voice. One of the reasons for that is that the tenses in English are not the same as the tenses in other languages. And some languages don't have equivalents to the tenses that we have. Similarly, some languages have tenses that we don't have. I mean, for example, Turkish, and they've got a mish ending, and it, it, it roughly translates to, it has been reported that. So we have to say something like, it's been reported to that, whereas they, they will say... Uh, Gulmimish, I think, you know, uh, it's reported that he or she laughed. Right. And are these, uh, you're being very specific now about the tenses. Is, is that something that uh, you see in, in the call style guide as well? Or is this very uh, SDE specific? Call comes from a different perspective. So SDE takes this perspective. If it's not approved, you can't use it. Cole says, if there are no problems with it, you can use it. Um, I can't remember what Cole says about tenses, but let me just let me just look in my in my style guide and see what he does say. Does this sound familiar to you, Scott? So, the, what what style guides are you familiar with? Uh, I use uh, quite a few uh, since most of my projects um, are software based. Um, I'll use things like the Microsoft Style Guide. Uh, a lot of times I have to deal with uh, mobile devices. Uh, Joe Walensky has a great book about writing for mobile devices. It's not really a style guide, but it has a lot of style examples and advice. So it can be used at least as a style guide unless you have you know, a specific one. It's called Developing User Assistance for Mobile Apps. So that's a good reference for me. The other one I use very often is uh, Google's. Uh, Google's developer documentation style guide. And that's because, you know, a name, you mentioned, uh, you had a fantastic list at the beginning. 
when you're starting out, if you can say, hey, this is based on Google style guide or IBM style guide or Microsoft style guide, that gives a lot of weight to it. So it, it ends a lot of those arguments about it. It's like, hey, they, they're a giant company. This is what they do. If we do what they're doing, <laughs> probably we'll be okay. So, so would you also prefer to, to choose a style guide that you're going to apply for a certain project or for a certain client? Or can it be a combination of, of several style guides? I think it depends on the client. Um, for example, if, if their focus is, hey, this is going to be used almost exclusively on a mobile device, I'm going to start with one that focuses on uh, mobile style guide information. Uh, if they're doing a little bit broader, um, I've seen groups literally pick and choose, open up what each one says about something and say, all right, we agree with that. Let's copy that and put it in our style guide. So sometimes people do that. Um, it really depends on the group. Yeah, exactly. We're going to talk about how you can create your own style guide uh, later, uh, I hope. <laughs> um, Mike, when, when you found... Uh what you're looking for, you, you okay. let's know. Well, I've got, I've, got some, I've got some examples here. Rule three, four, keep phrasal verbs together. So on page 38, because I can never remember, I need, to, I need to find an example. And this is how you actually use the style guide, right, guys? So you're constantly consulting it and, <laughs> and seeing where, what the rules is, looking for examples. Exactly. This is like a perfect <laughs> live example of using one. <laughs> well, I mean, but Scott's going to talk about, I believe, automation, aren't you, Scott? Because that's so important. And how, how much time do we waste looking in a, in a document when oh, for software sure. can do it for us? <laughs> but okay, so here we are, three, four keep phrasal verbs together it's got priority levels so for human translators and non-native speakers it's not so it's not so important for machine translation it's very important so where possible keep the parts of the phrasal verb together so turn a zoom off turn a zoom tool off by clicking the circle tool or turn off the zoom tool by clicking the circle tool and then it gives it, it just doesn't say that but it gives reasons so separated phrasal verbs confuse some non-native speakers who don't know those verbs. It helps with consistency because if you write somewhere turn, then a noun phrase and then off, and elsewhere you write turn off and then a noun phrase, well, there's an inconsistency. From a stylistic perspective, Cole suggests that turn off the Zoom tool is, is nicer than turn the Zoom tool off. And the last point is it's better for machine translation. Is this something like uh, parallel constructions, or is, is that something different? Parallel constructions is something different, but it could be. I mean, if you had if you had a set of of, of, of instructions with phrasal verbs in them, um, and some you kept the phrasal verb, you kept the particle, you separated the particle from the verb with the noun cluster, and elsewhere you didn't, then indeed you wouldn't be obeying the rule for parallel constructions. I'd love to bring in some examples that uh, makes it much more alive. Um, so if you if you guys have any examples that uh, okay, well, that explains some, some rules of the of the standards, please uh, please bring them in. Yes. Okay, how about this one from German then? And um, so I was talking earlier on about the the, the STE restricts the the tenses that you can use. Cole rule 3 5 use short simple verb phrases. 
In other languages, so he's saying in other languages, verb tenses are not always linked to time and different languages use different tenses to express the same point or range on the time axis. For example, in English, we use present perfect progressive have been living to express what a German conveys using the simple present wohne. English, I have been living in Berlin for 12 years. German, ich wohne seit 12 Jahren in Berlin. But by the way, um, guys, uh, these uh, the the call style guide and the ASD uh, SDE hundred um, style guide and those the Microsoft and the Google style guides are these freely available or do you have to purchase them? They are freely available and you have to purchase them. So, so um, yes, I mean they're easy to get. Uh, ASD and, and and Microsoft's writing style guide are free. Um, Cole, you have to pay for. I think it's about. Uh, approximately 30 euros, perhaps a little less. What do you know, Scott, about the, the Google Style Guide? Google Style Guide is on their website, and uh, the Microsoft Style Guide, which uh, started out as a book, the Microsoft Manual of Style, but that has been replaced by the Microsoft Style Guide. Microsoft's and Google, both on their website, freely available, and, and they often update it. Both of them have kind of a feedback section, too, so you You know, if you want them to add something or you disagree with something, <laughs> it's available. Well, I'd like to kick in there and say yes, and that's a huge disadvantage over a book or something like ASD, which is revised once, usually every three years, because you just don't know that something's changed. Exactly, and and I think it was revised in 2017, the latest version of the ASD. That's right. SD yeah, and the next first, one will yeah. be next year. And, and be, Because the, the ASDE standard um, consists of two parts. So it's a dictionary and it's a set of writing rules. And as far as I remember, for example, with, with such an update, well, some words are added to the dictionary. Is That's that right. And, and the writing rules were simplified and changed also. It's not, not just dictionary maintenance. I simplify it so they, it get, gets easier. Yes, the I mean the the rules. Some of the rules were quite. Some of the grammar rules were quite confusing and seemed to conflict. So they rewrote a lot of those um, to 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 make the rules to make the rules clearer. And of course, it's it's certainly vocabulary always changes, and 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 so they all they you know they continually update the terminology that's not approved um, and the suggestions for approved terms. One of the things I think they don't do very well is to explain that a lot of the dictionary is about word sense disambiguation. So it's not that a word or, for example, a verb is not approved. It's not approved with a particular meaning. But if you can use it, if, if, if you have a, um, if it's your technical term, then you, you want to use it. So what you need to do is to use it with, in its text, in its correct technical context and make sure that you don't use it in its incorrect context. And um, I'm good. I'm just going to talk amongst yourself for a moment. I'm just going to find an example. Yeah, of a noun or a verb, you mean? Let's let, let me find one. Is, is that something that is being uh, discussed in, in the Microsoft manual, Scott? So d does the Microsoft or Google manual contain a, a, a list of or a dictionary of approved and non-approved words? Uh, yes, I have uh, both of them open. Uh, so they have different sections. Uh, the Microsoft guy, for example, uh, has sort of a table of contents, and very near the top it has uh, A to Z word list and terms. So 
the words are scattered throughout. Like there is a section on tone. There's a section on capitalization. So words will come up, but they do have them combined. Both of them have them combined uh, in a section. And they both have a search as well. So you could just search uh, for how to do something. Um, let, let, let's, let's do a bit of a search. Um, <laughs> for, for example, um, confuses me all the time um, when to use click and when to use select. <laughs> okay. You got it. All right, so uh, word click. This is from Microsoft. It says, avoid this verb, which is specific to using a mouse. Instead, use verbs that work with multiple devices, such as select. It's okay to use click when you need to describe mouse actions specifically. So that, yeah, I think that's very good advice. Uh, we were talking about updating. Uh, one of the things that Microsoft is probably the best at of the examples I've seen uh, not only do they tell you when the last time it was, so this one as an example was updated last, January 19th, 2018. They even tell you who on their team contributed to it. And you can even contact them <laughs> if you want to. So it's, it's very uh, tied <laughs> to the authors and to the, uh, the last date it was updated. You've opened it online, so you, you, don't, you don't have a print copy there. You can download a PDF if you want to, but I think it's much better to use it online. It, it fits the type of company as well, right? So. Okay, I've got, I've got an example here now from STE. So the verb induce is not permitted if you mean cause. So example, scratches in, wind, in the windscreen may induce cracking. So this ST says don't use induce, they cause scratches in the windscreen can cause cracks. But induce can be a technical verb, as in inducing a current in a piece of wire. So if you're in the, in the context of electromagnetic, electromagnetism, then it's fine to use the verb induce okay i uh, meanwhile i was checking i, I found another example so uh, one one that i uh, have to use quite often that's the word screw so the word screw as a uh, as a verb so to screw something in is not allowed in simplified technical english so only the word the object screw as a technical noun is allowed so two examples are, um, so you can use, for example, screw in the following sentences, continue, um, no, sorry, attach the str straps to the panels with screws. And not allowed is screw straps to the panels. And so the, the standard um, clearly indicates which version is allowed and which version is not allowed. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it, yes, it is, Ferry. And it's interesting, it's not just the STE style guide that has rules uh, similar, to, similar to this. I, I can't give you the name of the company, but I was working some years ago working as a subcontractor um, on, a, on a shipping project. And the company there used a um, used a star guide which said, um, you know, and he gave some examples of, of of words that could be used as nouns, but not as not as verbs. It seems like it definitely makes sense. It's kind of nominalization using kind of a noun as a verb. It seems clear even to say, you know, connect using what you're going to connect it with or whatever the action 
verb is rather than using screw or nail or <laughs> whatever the connection device is. It seems like better writing in general. Plus, I'm sure it's confusing for translation. It's just bad all around. <laughs> yeah. Hey, and then Scott, um, so I'm familiar with uh, the, the Flare training guides, the guides that you've written. Um, did you use any style guide for, for them? Because I know they're very concise. They're very, um, all, all information types are formatted and written in, in the same way. What, what, what did you use for those training manuals? Yeah, so I, I think um, that's a good example. Of, uh, we were talking about consistency. Uh, to me, that's the, the biggest thing that you get out of the style guide is consistency. Even if you're the only person writing, <laughs> it still is very useful. Uh, so with a tool like Flare, uh, the way that it's set up is you can have a global project. So we have several training guides, and they are their own projects. You know, you could think of the equivalent of, say, separate Microsoft Word documents. But you have this, uh, this global project, and that's where I keep all my examples. So I have um, an example table. I have an example bulleted list, a numbered list, paragraph, even small kind of boilerplate uh, topics and I follow the style guide rules in the samples uh, so you use the example of say of a cross-reference I have a sample cross-reference so if I forget how I'm supposed to format one or set one up or I'm worried that I did it wrong I know I can go to that global project and copy it uh, the way that flare works is you can import from a global project into a child project so it's even more convenient because I have it right there in the child project. If I need something like we were just looking things up, I don't have to go anywhere to look for it. It's right there. <laughs> I, I just It's in the project. I go there. It's right there. I copy it and paste it in. It takes eh, maybe a minute. So that's your database of reusable content already, actually, based on, 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 on style, uh, principles you took from style exactly. guides. Yeah, that's a good way of working. Um, you were talking about you have experience with the, the Microsoft uh, Manual of Style and the Google Manual of Style. What are the, the main differences between those two? One thing that that I think we were talking about, maybe copying and pasting or making your own style guide, one big thing that you need to keep in mind, and they're very clear about this. The, in fact, the first topic in the Microsoft style guide since that's the one I still have open. First topic is about Microsoft's brand voice. So they make it very clear this is our style guide and it, it follows our brand and how we do things. It may not match how your company does things. Mike was talking about a, a lot of these you know, concepts are based on research. So there are things that are facts that it's hard to have a different opinion about. People have done a lot of research. This is what works. This is the right way to do something. Uh, and those are in here. But there are many things where there's kind of, well, you could do it this way. You could do it this way. There's no definite right or wrong. So Microsoft tells you up front, and Google does the same, this is how we do it. So we chose because that matches our brand. That may not be the best choice for you. And they, they both do a good job of presenting options. Uh, Microsoft has a section when they talk about tone and they give examples and they, they even say, hey, in this situation, this might work best. In this situation, this could work best. And Google does the same thing. I think when you make your own style guide, 
And many of those places you can pick because you know your brand. You can say, no, this is how we do it. <laughs> we don't have two ways to do this. We do it this way, so do it that way. So those are the kind of differences that you see based on their own branding. Uh, capitalization, they capitalize things a little bit differently. Um, so there's small differences. That's always um, also like can, can be quite challenging to choose how to capitalize certain words. For example, headings. Is there what what do the style guides say that that you have there right now? So the Microsoft, Google, or SDE, for example, uh, do you use all caps or initial caps? That's it. One that's interesting about Google. So Google's branding, their tone is less formal, I would say, than maybe some other companies. So Google just uses initial caps. I'm looking at a particular uh, section right now in the style guide, writing accessible documentation. Only the W is capitalized, whereas even a company like Microsoft would typically capitalize, they would do initial caps all the way, you know, or um, title cap, they would capitalize the W, the A, and the D. So that I see that varying a lot between companies, um, how you capitalize uh, headings. Yeah, we all have a preference. My preference is just capitalizing the W in this example, but <laughs> that's only a preference. That's not based on facts. Right. And, and uh, Mike, if you want to interrupt me, uh, go oh, ahead. Uh, yeah, well, ST, STE says, um, so one of, the, one of the headings in the preface, does STE regulate text formatting? No. It doesn't tell you how to write your headings, and that's is, that's for your style guide to specify. And do, doesn't SDE say anything about capitalization? I d don't think so. Um, in my, I mean, STE assumes that you are writing correct English. So if you need a capital at the start of a sentence, it, I, I, STE doesn't tell you to do that. I'm not sure what it says about lists. It might tell you to start a list with a um, a list item with a capital letter, but I'm not sure. And meanwhile, so a, a big chunk of um, writing technical documentation or technical content is writing procedures and instructions. What what do you think? Um, how, how does a good procedure, a sequence of steps, for example, look like? Um, first of all, what, what do you think it should look like and what, what do uh, the style guides say that you're familiar with? That's a, a, maybe one of the most interesting <laughs> places where things seem to differ. Um, if you look at a style guide that focuses on writing for mobile devices, I mentioned Joe's book. Uh, he talks quite a bit about um, that specific situation. So writing for a mobile device, the steps are extremely minimal. I, I follow minimalist uh, writing uh, principles all the time. And even to me, it seems extremely minimalist. So there are very few words <laughs> writing a, a step for a mobile device, specifically for a mobile device. And it even, um, when I bring it up in presentations or I'm teaching about it, I even try to prepare people because if you haven't seen it, it's almost jarring <laughs> how little is there. So that's different. Even uh, what is often called a feedback statement where you have a step and then, you know, a paragraph that's sort of explaining the step and then the next step. Uh, even those feedback statements are, are often excluded 
when you're writing um, for a mobile device because they just take up space. <laughs> so they are left out. So that's a place where you see a lot of differences. And do you have two examples, for example, of uh, instructions that, that you would use in, in um, like a more in an online help, for example, uh, for, for desktop purposes and a sentence that you would use in, in for um, mobile documentation? I can make up an example off the top of my head. So something like uh, click print, and then there might be a sentence after it, uh, the document prints. So there's some feedback that the document prints would absolutely be left out for mobile. Uh, well, can I, uh, I, I want to question that. Um, what, why, if the feedback is necessary and it's not in mobile, then there's something missing from the mobile. If it's not necessary in mobile, why would anyone want to put it in the desktop? You know, that to me, there's good writing and there's bad writing. And there's, if an instruction requires a feedback step, feedback information, then it needs to be in there. And if it's not necessary, then putting it in there is bad writing. Right, but, but confirming that, that, that something is being printed um, is taking away uncertainties for the user or just confirming that he or she did something Why right. is it necessary? If it's, if it's necessary, why isn't it in the mobile? And if it's not necessary in the mobile, what's so special? Well, you know, are the mobile users a bit more savvy than the average desktop user such that they don't need to be told that this document will be printed? Could be, but maybe a cultural thing as well. That some cultures, uh, well, I know that some cultures like to have more feedback uh, on if they did things right. Okay, but that's a different issue, isn't it? Then that's cultural, and it's it's uh, that's to you know. Let's talk about one person from one culture one day using a mobile device and the next day using a desktop device. Why are there different instructions? I, I agree with what you're saying. As, as I was saying, I'm a minimalist, so you have to argue for me to add words <laughs> rather than it's hard to get me to, to add them for me to take them out. Um, I, to me, the split is, is right what you're getting at. Um, I think a lot of times, especially if you're writing for print, we think, oh, this would be nice to have, so we put it in. It's useful. It's not required, but useful, um, so it's often in there. Uh, the need to have that you're mentioning I think would be there in mobile. It would, it, you know, it needs to be there. It's always there. But that nice to have is the gray area where we look at it and say, well, that's not essential, so we could take that out. That's the part I see disappearing. I, I mean, I accept that fully, Scott. And I'm, and I'm a minimalist. Um, but all I'm saying is, if you don't need it for mobile, why do you need it? For, you know, it's nice to know, but it's not necessary. So, so remove it. Sure. I, yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you. <laughs> I think what's happening is it's in there now because people thought, oh, this is useful. And then there, there's an approach that, oh, we're taking this out because of the, the mobile. But I, I would argue, like you're saying, I, I normally write that way to begin with, <laughs> and I wouldn't would have necessarily had it in there. But another interesting example that helps helps people kind of see it, something you see a lot of times in a step there's typically a few different ways to do it, like a keyboard shortcut or a menu. And often we list those. I wouldn't say it's necessarily right or wrong, but you might see, do this or this or this. Mobile, you always pick one. <laughs> you don't tell them every way they can do it. You only pick one of them. Um, 
Whereas if we have more space, there there's a value in telling people, hey, here's the keyboard shortcut. Here's what the icon looks like. Again, I'm going to disagree with you, Scott, because all of that low-level navigation doesn't need to be in an instruction. You know, stick all of that information in an appendix or on a front page, quick, you know, quick tips and let users learn the quick tips and then they can they don't need to be told every time because you look on the screen and you see what the keyboard short shortcut is true and i'm not saying this is how i would write it this is what okay. i'm seeing yeah yeah so i typically see you know a step that has a lot of or statements do this or this or mm. this or this and people think oh yeah that's the right way to do it but then when they go to mobile it's like oh we can't do that I think that's the first time maybe people have dealt with maybe we should first you get them to take it out from mobile and then you get them to think, do we even need this? <laughs> maybe we can leave this out all the time. <laughs> but mobile is typically the first time they think about ever taking it out. Hey, and Scott, so if um, you were going to write instructions for both desktop and uh, and mobile, which, which style guides uh, would you pre prefer to use? I usually start with uh, the book that I mentioned, Joe Walensky's book, uh, and then I would use, uh, I like the Google style guide. It matches more the tone and, and uh, style that I usually write towards. It's, a, like I said, a little less formal than other ones. Uh, so I usually start with those two. And uh, so, so the Google style guide clearly distinguishes um, mobile documentation and desktop documentation or maybe even print and online they have a section about responsive content and that's where they talk a lot about you know mobile uh, specific issues um, they have some nice guidelines too so they also have a section about scannable content which you know applies just in general it's all this idea of chunking and uh, making it easy to follow things they talk about bold facing to make things stand out keeping it short it's general advice. I think mobile has just made it pop in people's heads. They should have, like we've been saying, we probably should have been doing this all the time, <laughs> but now people are, are actually doing it. it. It makes it more visible to them. And with scannable content, you mean uh, the way you can find information when you have it on your screen, for example? Exactly, yeah. Uh, in what case, cases would you use the Microsoft Manual of Style? Uh, or is it just the, the, the well, the the style preferral prefers that you have? I refer back to both of them. Some of them, uh, I'll give you a good comparison. The Google Style Guide, has it's very easy to find if you're looking for information about, say, punctuation or formatting. Those are the main headings. So if I'm wondering, hey, you know, we need some rules about colons, very easy to find that in Google's. Uh, a little bit harder to find that in Microsoft without the search. So the way that the content is organized and presented is very different between the two of them. The information, once you get to it, is very similar, but finding it's a little bit different because of the way they organize it. Okay. And um, what I – we created our own internal style guide, and uh, I, I'm, I'm still – I like to apply the, the rules and the use of simplified technical English, apply the, their dictionary. Um, but – it's it's not always complete. So, for example, and it may be different in, in the 2017 update. Maybe you can confirm it, Mike. But there was a lot of software terminology missing. As so, for example, click, select, enter versus type, etc. Um, so it didn't didn't provide an answer for all things that you um, 
you can find on your path when writing documentation. Um, so, and, and of course, um, some things you do simply because you're, you, uh, it's your way of working. So the way you write documentation and that may be different than described in, in, in existing in the simplified technical, technical English standard, for example. Um, so it was a bit contradicting with, uh, sometimes with the way I used to work and I, well, thought, okay, I need my own style guide. And that's why I, I researched existing style guides and finally decided to combine bits of the IBM style guide, the SAP style guide, simplified technical English style guide. And also the, we didn't mention it yet, but the A2079 standard for information for use. Um, what was my point? Um, yeah, so um, I, I can imagine that when you write for a certain company as, as write the technical documentation, it, it may be really helpful to choose a certain style. That's why we're going to use the STE specification or we're going to use the, the, the Google specification like we discussed before. But uh, for internal purposes, I think uh, it, it can be a good mix of all kinds of existing style guides. What do you think about that? I'd like to go back to your question, comment about computer terminology. It did make it into the 2017 version. It's Rule 12.2, um, computer processes and applications. So input-output processes, enter, click, digitize, user interface, clear, close, copy, system operations, boot, communicate, download. So they're all there. And, and, and the, the, the premise of Rule 112 is the title. You can use verbs that you can include in a technical verb category. So if it's a term that you use for your technical documentation, then you can include it. Although possibly it has also a not approved meaning in the dictionary. But that's going back to the word sense disambiguation, which I think the, uh, the Simplified Technical English Maintenance Group do not make a good job of explaining at all. I like that what you were describing, I, and that's typically what I end up doing is kind of picking and choosing, um, because there are gaps, and and we also have different needs. The people that say you mentioned IBM, they may have made theirs because that matches <laughs> the information that they needed to to standardize, but you may have other situations that they haven't dealt with yet, so it's hard to find one that answers everything. Or you know, we all have preferences too. You might find one that you. <laughs> seriously disagree with on some point we are talking about many of the things are based on facts which is nice but not all of them and those things that aren't based on facts that's where people have very strong opinions and if you pick and choose you can pick the whoever agrees with you <laughs> to put in your style guide are there any like common mistakes that you see in existing documentation for example words uh, that, that are being used i'm a Thinking of one example, uh, for hit uh, the enter button, for example, or hit enter. <laughs> That's a classic one. Is, is that the <laughs> is that the Google way of uh, be being having more freedom in, or a less a less formal way of saying things? Or? I don't know anyone that that's okay with using the word hit for you know pressing a key or something like that. Um, that's usually someone that doesn't maybe have a background in tech writing, but uh, that is a classic example. Uh, that would be extremely informal. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you definitely see that a lot. I uh, to 
to me, kind of tied to that is uh, something I definitely wanted to bring up. It comes up a lot in UX writing, and it's definitely becoming bigger in, in tech doc just in general, is the idea of uh, tone and um, and word choice. I did have two style guides I wanted to recommend. Uh, one is from the National Center on Disability and Journalism, and they have a disability language style guide. And then a group, someofus.org, has what they call the progressive style guide. Um, with more awareness that's building up, if we look back at existing documentation, we can see places where maybe this isn't you know, matching the world today. And we can have, whether it's an example, the way that we refer to people, we can make this better, make it more inclusive. And these two style guides really focus on that. And I think they're a great place to draw that type of information. Um, I deal with a lot of existing content and having to sort of retroactively make it consistent by making a style guide. And this, this, I would call this a mistake. This is a mistake I see a lot. Just a simple example of, hey, you know, every time you refer to the user, it's, you know, with a masculine pronoun. Maybe we, <laughs> we need to fix this because that's it's distracting at this point. Yeah, and I think what, what, you, what you're saying as well and then what we've mentioned before, like the Microsoft manual is constantly being updated. The, SEs, the specification is being updated every few years. But like style guides are living documents, right? Yes, yes. And they they have updated it. That's one of the, probably the most recent thing they've updated. They have a, Microsoft has a whole section, bias-free communication, and they they talk through it and that's from less than six months ago i believe that they updated it and also when you're going to create your own style guide you you can't think you can't make up all the rules that you want to include so you can think of the things most quite most often use but um when writing on it or like maybe a few months later you think of some some new rules when you're writing for a different project or a, a different device or software versus hardware etc and then you can add it to your, your style guides. Are, are there any uh, tips, guys? So um, when, uh, let's say, um, I'm a technical writer, or um, what I mean is one of our listen- listeners is a technical writer and wants to improve the quality of his or her content, how, um, what should I do to, to create my own style guide? I suggest that you don't create your own style guide. It's a lot of work. Just uh, spend your $30 and buy one. <laughs> Seriously. Mm-hmm. Or use, use. there is so much existing material that is good. There's very little point, I think, in, in making your own. What you can do is supplement. We will use XYZ Star Guide, except in these conditions. Yes, I and I think that's a great place to start. It, it's... A- it's a lot of work <laughs> to make a style. Absolutely. And if there are good ones out there, why not start with one of those? And Ferry, I think what you were, were getting at the reason that you made yours is because they're, they're not all, they're not going to have everything that you need. So as Mike's saying, um, pick one that, that has pretty much everything you need and that you agree with and think, yeah. Or what happens for me a lot of times is they have existing content. So when we're picking it's well, Maybe, you know, at some point you had a style guide and who knows, maybe that person left or and maybe you've just because of the way you write, you've been consistent in your own writing. You didn't have a style guide. It's just coming from your head. We need to get this written down because there are other people on the team and they can't see what's in your head. 
so we kind of retroactively find one that matches the way all the content has been written as close as possible. So yeah, starting with something that exists and then enhancing it where it's lacking, I think is fantastic advice. Really good. Yeah, and then, then you just enhance it with your own experience and your own ideas for, for style guide. And then what, what I, I think it's the SDE or it's IBM, one of those, um, yeah, I, I know those best. Um, for example, well, one of those, maybe both, are referring to the Chicago or the Oxford Manual of Style. As actually, what they say is everything that is not being discussed in this specification or style guide, uh, please refer to the Oxford uh, or Chicago Manual of Style. Is that what you mean with pick your own and... Well, no, not really. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's pick your own and, and write because because you you've explained fairly that you, the style guides that you've, you the the commercial ones don't deal with all the situations so you have to you have to supplement that with your own with your own information um so what i meant was you know take a take a style guide and then it doesn't deal with such and such so you 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 write your own style guide for the things that it doesn't deal with or you say under these conditions we'll use this one and under these conditions we'll use that one for example so when you would advise someone, you would say, okay, look at your situation. Are you writing hardware documentation or software documentation or mobile versus a desktop? Uh, and pick, pick the style guide that fits best to your way of working. Is that a good way of working? Yeah, I, th I think picking one for sure. Yeah, like Mike's saying. Um, the, I, another piece of this, um, the enhancing part of it, to me, this, the style guide, things like grammar, you're going to get that from, say, Chicago Manual Style. So that's not going to be in you know, Microsoft. So they're probably even going to say, hey, <laughs> go use this for grammar rules, uh, which is fine. And they're adding on to it. So even they're adding on. Um, but the thing that we have to add on that's not going to be in any style guide or that I deal with all the time are literally the styles. Now, it's one thing to say, hey, here's how we write a heading. But the name of that heading style, the actual style, is different in a lot of different companies or the lead-in sentence to a procedure. There's a name for that style, but it varies. That's why I like to have the examples, because to me, the style guide is not only, hey, here's how I'm supposed to write things, but it's here's how I'm supposed to format it. And I can't copy and paste. If I copy and paste from Microsoft style guide, I still have to format it, and there's still a place I could mess up. But if we have our own style guide, I can literally copy that and paste it in. And that that is huge. That To me, that that's big part of the consistency. It's not just how it's written. It's how it's tagged or formatted. That's They're equally important. But then you're talking about uh, creating st um, uh, style sheets, for example, in, 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 in any CMS system. Yeah, we need a style sheet. And then the style guide has examples that use the style sheet. So I could copy a whole sample procedure that is written correctly, you know, with just fake steps, but I can see how they're supposed to be written and it's formatted correctly. So now I just have to write it using the steps, you know, that I need to write. So then you're automating actually yes. a large part of the process. Absolutely. And that's what I think you get out of making your own. Even if you're relying on another one and say, hey, go over here to see how it's supposed to be written or go over here to see how you're supposed to follow grammar rules. Here are our examples that you can copy and paste from that follow those rules and are formatted correctly. Yeah, it's in there, so use it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> okay, is, is, does that sound familiar to you, Mark? Uh, do, do you use any? Yeah, I mean, in theory, Scott, that is fantastic. I have worked for some very large organisations where the people who write the documents um, are not professional writers. And they have not really got much of a clue about how to use their tools. So, for example, Microsoft Word. I have seen documents where tables of contents have been typed out and page numbers manually added. I've seen heading styles have been all manually applied um, using you know, the, the format button rather than using a named style. And so I think there's a huge problem with, with people having tools and not knowing how to use them effectively. For sure. I think the copy and paste concept helps with that. I mean, people are still going to make mistakes and do it wrong. But I think if they realize, I, I, tables are a classic example. Tables and lists are the things people seem to fight with the most. If I know, oh, I can come over here and copy a table and it comes in and it's actually a table and it's formatted correctly and I don't have to do it. Wow. <laughs> That's so nice because I hate putting in tables now because I don't know how to do it. So that I, they can still mess it up, but at least hopefully it's, it makes it a little bit easier to have it done correctly. Yes. Uh, one thing that, uh, that comes up is um, do style guides talk about different audiences? And actually it's the, que the question is, do you need uh, do we need separate style guides for, for style guides for different audiences? <laughs> Would an audience be more of a job function or experience level? Or are you thinking more geographical? Well, it could, could be either of those. So, for example, I can imagine that, well, when the education level of a certain person is a bit less than, than another person, then I maybe want to format or um, structure things differently. I'll take the easiest part of that example. Uh, the easiest one would be thinking about accessibility. Uh, there are definitely guidelines about writing content for people with different um, abilities, if you want to call it that. Um, and Microsoft has a section writing for all abilities and they talk about put the person first, uh, focus on something, you know, a writing style that someone that maybe has trouble seeing or has trouble moving the mouse, they can still accomplish the task and get to the information, whether it's they're listening to a screen reader and writing for that. So those types of different audiences, yes, but I think it's going to come back to what we were talking about before you're going to realize, wow, writing for, you know, to be totally accessible is just really improving my writing. It's not, I'm, I'm writing it differently for this group. It's like, this is how I should write it for everybody. <laughs> so it's just changing your writing style in general. Maybe rather than having two, one for this group and one for this group, it's like, this, this works even better for all groups. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe that's what we discussed in the beginning. So the definition of, of a style guide is to, or the purpose of a style guide is to make documentation clearer. And that's that regardless whether, by, by whom documentation is being used. Yeah. Makes sense. I agree. Um, but I, I, I think also you have to consider the audience because I, I mean, I, the style guides that I've seen um, don't, 
really talk about I mean, you're going to write for a 10-year-old and you're going to write for somebody who's had a university education. The, 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 the way you write is going to be different. Um, if, you, if you make your document accessible to the 10-year-old, you're going to really annoy the postgrad. If you target it at the postgrad, then the 10-year-old might struggle. There, there is some... There is some middle ground somewhere, but I don't think it's possible to write fully accessible document for all audiences all the time in, with one document. Do you have any examples of when it was not possible, or do you just um, think? Well, let's are... just talk. No, I'm just talking in abstract terms. But let's think about. Um, all right, I'll change. I'll change the. Uh, I'll change the. Um, the um, the example a little bit. Let's say. Let's say you're writing a um, an explanation of 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 some phenomena. If if the to- if if that's targeted at at um, if that's targeted at, at people who have studied that subject area, then it's the document's got to be different from writing for a lay audience. And a lot of star guys they don't. I don't think they really go into that sort of type of, of, of um, you know, how do you really deal with that? I mean, when I write, when I write my um, my instruction manuals, when I start working with projects or with, 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 with companies, then I say, well, look, we, we, I can't do everything for everybody. What, what are the assumptions? You know, who is the audience? What do they know? What don't they know? What can we assume they know? Because we have to make assumptions about what they do, they know. Because if we don't make assumptions, when do you stop going back? When do you stop explaining? It's just impossible. You know, I mean, the perfect document is a document that is tailored to the individual. So you've got 100,000 users and 100,000 different documents. There's personalization for you. But from a practical perspective, in the current state of technology, it's not possible. I think that's an excellent point, um, and I I agree with you. Uh, and it's not something that I see. I can't think of a good example in a style guide that addresses that. But I, we always have a primary audience, and usually numerous secondary audiences. And sometimes the primary audience is you know a a pretty expert <laughs> level user, and sometimes they're very much a novice user. And the writing has to be different <laughs> for those two groups. They need different information. I, to me, the classic example, uh, and this is where I like, again, to use the copy and paste um, because you could kind of copy it. A uh, classic example would be something like I saw a step, and it was you know, first step one was open the default site. And this group, their audience is more expert users. So when they say open the default site, their audience knows how to open something. They know where the default site is. They know how to do that. They move right on to step two. But they know that they have novices. <laughs> this is the first time they've ever done it. They read that and think, I don't know how to open something. I don't know what a site is. And I don't know what the default site is. <laughs> I'm already lost on step one. So their approach, because they're writing for the experts, they wrote it like that, but they layered in additional information. They put a little you know, show hide type link it said tell me how and you could click that and then the feedback statement appeared that 
that had sub-steps, and it told you how to complete step one. But that was initially hidden because they write for the experts. So those kind of techniques, I think, should be documented in a style guide, and the style guide should make it very clear this is the audience that we write towards, just like it makes it clear about tone and branding and things like that. But you rarely see that, and you're not going to see that in Google's or Microsoft's, and even if you do, it's not going to apply to your writing. But that's something that you need to capture and and the team needs to be aware of. Everyone needs to be writing for the same audience within at least the same <laughs> set of content. Yeah, thanks for adding that, uh, Scott. So we're talking about style guys for for uh, over eighty minutes uh, already. <laughs> um, so we're we're coming to an end. I have one last question uh, before we wrap up. Um, but before. I asked that question. Is there anything you like to add? So things we didn't discuss yet or any giveaways that you want to to mention for the listeners? It's been an excellent discussion. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, I've I've enjoyed it too, um, Scott and Ferry. But um, in terms of answering your question, Ferry, no, there's nothing that I can think of to add. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for answering. Thanks for answering that. Um, okay, so last question. Well, we've talked a bit about uh, automation. Um, my, my, my last question is related to that. What, what do you guys think is the future of style guides and uh, improving the quality of, of tech writing? Are there any like innovations that, are, that can help us to, to write better content? There are um, products like Acrolinks, which let you, you know, basically embed your star guide into software. Um, there are checkers. There are what I would like to see is a writer's workbench, an IDE for technical writers. So you know the way that the the software developers have an IDE and they type some words, and then they get a list of all the possible terms or words or whatever phrase they can use in the next bit something like that where you've embedded you've embedded the star guide into your writing environment so you you know you've permitted to make an error uh, yeah anything that automates it and makes it easier for me to realize like, if something could tell me when i'm working on something hey there's this is in the style guide and it just kind of popped up kind of what you're describing that'd be incredibly useful um now, why do I have to go look it up every time? You don't exactly. You don't see programmers doing that. They start typing a command, and <laughs> information pops up. It's right there. The same people that'll say, "Oh, people don't use the help," are using it all the time because that's help right there. And we don't have that in our own tools. Yeah, and I think the most uh, content management systems or CCMSs, um, they have functionalities to build your own dictionary, for example. Uh, there are plugins um, like Simplified Technical English plugins. Um, Acrolinks can can scan on content on SDE. Yes, it can. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, of course, those features like building your own dictionary are all ways to um, to br bring in uh, your own style or to to um, uh, to improve the quality of your content. Of course, and they're all style guides related. So do you think, is there like a, artificial intelligence can contribute to creating better documentation or contribute to, to existing style guides? If you consider the, the checkers a form of artificial intelligence, then absolutely. Um, anything that can look it over and say, 
you know, maybe you should do it this way or this, or even this is wrong. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's tied to artificial intelligence. So sure. I mean, it depends what you mean by AI, doesn't it? I mean, it, you know, there are yeah, two kind of, yeah. I, I mean, interesting. I, about two weeks ago, I discovered that um, if I were minded to, I could describe the, the TechScribe term checker as a type of artificial intelligence, which is kind of quite interesting because I never looked at it that way. But yeah, it, 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 there are there are different perspectives on what art. You know, there's the, the kind of like the the machine learning black box approach, and then there's the rule based approach, and. I mean, both of those, I mean, I only talk about, I can only talk about rule-based because that's all I know, but I, I don't see why, you know, uh, the, 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 the sort of machine learning approach also cannot be useful. And then the, this uh, term checker you're talking about, the text term checker, is, is it an STE term checker? STE only. It can be, it, it can be customized, but it, I, you know, I mean, I sell it only as, a, as an STE checker. And I, I think also like, um, like Madcap Flare has an, and maybe, maybe most CMSs uh, have like an auto suggestion function. So I think when you create snippets or build your own dictionary and you, you enable the auto suggestion, uh, suggestion function, it suggests which words or even sentences uh, you can use. Is that correct, Scott? Yeah, you, and there are plugins um, that you can use that'll do uh, checking. Uh, Kaizen has a plugin. The Acrolinks has a plugin. So yeah, there's that's something that's growing. And I I think if we had to put our finger on where could we get the most gain, and we'll see things changing. It's it's definitely this because this this is just in its infant stages of where it could be and where it should be. So to to summarize it, so when we can give technical writers any advice on how to apply style guides. We may say, okay, so just have a look around uh, which style guides are out there already, like PDF versions, consult them, read them, see what's useful for you, what you can use, what's, how you would enhance those to, to create your own uh, style guide. See how you can automate things by using existing uh, content management systems and have a close look at new developments in the market that that can help you creating better documentation. Mm. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I'd just like to I'd just like to add a couple of things. Um, in terms of terminology management, there are a couple of uh, free open source tools. There's Language Tool, and there's the Vale Linter. And Vale is designed for it makes mostly sort of software development environment. Language Tool is more general text, but you can certainly you can customize those and you can build your own rules for um, terminology management into those good one thanks for adding that yeah and talking about tools um, we have um, a SDE checker online as well so it's SDE uh, minus tool.com I think I'll put it in the transcriptions but that's a terminology tool for simplified technical English as well um, yeah that, that's useful thanks for adding that Mike yeah, I'm going to thank you guys. Thanks for this interesting discussion. So we've talked about a lot of things all related to style guides. And thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you for putting it uh, together, Ferry. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thanks for being guest and thanks for sharing a lot of expertise on, on, on the, this topic. Um, I'm sure it's really useful for all the, all the listeners and 
will help them to create better content. That's it for now. Bye-bye. You're listening to Instructive's Insane Instruction Show. I am Ferry V. I create happy and safe users for over two decades. This is a listen and learn podcast to help your firm keep on the right side of the law by creating better information for use. How do you know you can trust what I say? I've worked in product development and compliance for a few decades and I've built up three companies and my blog attracts over 10,000 visitors a month. None of this is as important as keeping your company and your users safe. They're happy, their partners are happy and of course, I am happy for them.